Now we're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, and we're going to look at the whole of that chapter and through into the first three verses of chapter 8. And you may, in fact, I would hope you would find some of this um, quite disturbing, just like that song we sang. The first part of it is quite disturbing. You don't expect to come to church and be singing about Canaanitish gods and innocent blood being shed and so on. But the Bible is profoundly realistic. Um, Part of what I'm going to say this morning, just a small quote I I posted on Facebook because I was so impressed with uh, the quote you'll see that I'll put up later. And almost instantly, somebody wrote in this, what a profoundly sick and vindictive sentiment. Now, I'll tell you what the quote is when we we get to it, but... uh, There is something in this that people just, we find really, really hard to grasp. My response to that, by the way, what a profoundly sick and vindictive sentiment is, yes, it is, unless it's true. So I hope that what we're going to look at here is the truth. And I have to ask what you're doing here, what you're here for, and whether we really want to hear truth. One of my favorite songs is by John Lennon, and it's called uh, Give Me Some Truth, And one of the verses goes like this, I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. And we may say that we want truth, but we've really got to question it. Mez, for those of you who weren't there on Wednesday, Mez uh, McConnell is a church planter, a minister, if you like, in Nidri. Um, he doesn't look like a minister. Even occasionally people say to me, David, you don't look like a minister, but I I'm, I'm look positively like the Pope compared with Mez. And he, he came in, you know, the wee Ned hat and the whole works. And I, I, he spoke, he's got this very, very dry sense of humor. And his life, if you get a chance, please do listen to his story. Just absolutely horrific and how he himself got involved in in, in drugs and um, bank robbery and violence and so on, end up in jail. And he did become a Christian. And he works in a community where a significant number of people are tied up with drugs and alcohol problems, dysfunctional families and so on. And he said something for me that was really interesting. He said he, just, he knows that people are lying scumbags. He has a subtle approach with words that, again, makes me look positively diplomatic. And But the interesting thing he said about that was, he said, I listen not for the lie, I listen for the truth, because everyone's lying. They're just lying all the time. And I listen for something that's true. Now, it's interesting as well that he wasn't just saying that this is just true of people who you'd consider to be junkies or whatever. He said, that's basically the human condition. I don't know if you've seen the film Liar, Liar, in which Jim Carrey is forced to tell the truth. Uh, by some magic spell for 24 hours. And the, the whole premise of the film is, is quite amusing because it's that we're based, we live in a society where it's just assumed that people lie. We, we, how we act and what we say, we don't really tell the truth. We live in a society and a culture where truth is valued, at least in word, but not practiced. Now, I think that's also true of the church. And We may say we want to hear the truth, but sometimes we're just playing games. 
Because church is a great place to come, pretend, play games, and walk away. But what if there was reality? What if God showed up? Because that's what happens in the passage we're looking at. Jeremiah chapter 7. Young man, Jeremiah, perhaps in his 20s at this point. We pretty well know the year. We know it's around the year 604, 605 BC, before Christ. It's over 2,600 years ago. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, we find on, by the way, page 764. I'm going to read it as we go through it, so I'll not read it just now. But as we go through it, we'll read it bit by bit, and it'll be also up on the screen. But in this chapter, Jeremiah is giving a very famous sermon called the Temple Sermon. It's so famous, it was actually repeated again in Jeremiah chapter 26, at least part of it. It was not short soundbite stuff. It was not a wee religious or personal pep talk. It was a real deal. It was the word from God with the result that people got so mad that they asked that he be executed. And there was, an, uh, as you read on in Jeremiah, you'll find that there were a group of people who basically went to the authorities and said, execute that guy. Now, um, I don't anticipate there being any kind of reaction like that uh, this morning, but I do hope that you will listen to what God has to say and that we ask the Lord that he would give us a word for us today. So, um, Louise, I think you're probably going to have to move it on. Yeah. Oh, no, there it is. I worked it. Good. Okay, we're going to look at the temple sermon, and the first part of that sermon is in uh, Jeremiah 7, verses 1 to 15. I'm going to read the first four verses. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through the gates, come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Just to set the kind of background to this, it's a time of great international uncertainty. The Assyrian Empire to the north of Israel had crumbled. Egypt was getting more and more involved in Syria and Palestine and Judah. That was affecting Judah. When you think about it, this is over two and a half thousand years ago, and things haven't changed. What's going on in, in that area of the world, in Egypt and in Iraq and in Iran and in Syria, is still of huge significance throughout the whole world. The Babylonian power was getting stronger, and the political leadership in Israel were trying to work out who to ally with. The religious leaders boasted about the temple, they had this great temple in the middle of Jerusalem, and they boasted about the fact that they were. Uh, God's people and that they had this religion. Now, the temple was really important to the people of Judah. It was right at the center of their capital, and they loved it. It was a guarantee to them of God's presence. And Jeremiah is told to go and stand at the entrance to the temple. And if I can draw this kind of picture, there were seven entrances, and you, each one you went through, you got closer and closer into the center. And he's basically been asked to stand at uh, one of these main entrances as people are coming in, and they're streaming in. It's on a feast day, and he's asked to preach God's word to them. They had come to worship. They'd come to bow down. They'd come to participate in the sacrifices, but it was only ritual. They'd come 
They would go home thinking they'd done their duty and that they would be okay. And today, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians, hundreds of thousands of professing Christians in Britain today who will go to church, who will bow down, who will say that they are worshiping and think that they are worshiping, who will sing their hymns and sing their psalms and take communion and listen to a sermon, preferably the shorter the better, a few familiar readings from the Bible, and they'll go home and they'll say, good one, did my duty, now I can get on with life. And this is what God says about that kind of religion. The people and the leaders are urged to repent and to reform. And I'm going to give you four reasons why that is. If you look, uh, you can see the words up there. They were trusting in the wrong thing. They were trusting in deceptive words. The beginning of verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, what what was happening is they were coming in, they were saying the words, and they were repeating the words again and again and again. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. And again, doesn't that happen in churches today that people will come in and they'll be reading, maybe off a liturgy or something, and they're just words. Or they'll be singing, and they'll be singing a chorus or a song, and they'll sing the same line over and over and over and over again. Um, I remember, uh, I was quite, I thought this was actually very perceptive of Murdo, our dear Murdo, who's not here today, so I quote him. He was in a meeting where they were singing the song, I will sing of your love forever. But they kept going. You know, I will sing of your love forever. And they just kept going. It went on for ages and ages and ages. And Murdo, uh, in a somewhat stage whisper, said, I didn't know we were taking this literally. <laughs> but we, we, you find that sometimes, don't you, in churches, that you think, if, if I just repeat this enough, if I repeat it enough, then it'll work. If I just say, if I say the Lord's Prayer 20 times, if I, if I do the rosary and if I do Hail Mary X number of times, and when you think about it, it's so stupid. Why would God listen to us? Because we keep, do you listen to somebody because they keep saying something? Do they not really bore you? Do they not really get on your nerves? And, and, and this idea that this kind of repetition, but the people thought that. They were just going in. It was like a mantra, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What was the lie with that? The lie was this. The lie was that they believed that everything would go well with Judah because they were Judah, because they were God's people. And again, like us today, there are far too many Christians who are living in Scotland with the lie, well, everything will go well. Let's say this church, the free church, will go well with the free church because we're the last stronghold of the pure gospel, because we have the gospel, because we have the word of God. Everything will go well with us. Everything will go well with us. Or in the Church of Scotland, which is facing enormous crisis itself just now, and you get Christians, evangelical Christians within the Church of Scotland saying, it'll turn around, it'll turn around, it will go well, it will go well. Think of our great heritage, think of our great past. Or in the charismatic churches, where again people will say, it will go well with us, it will go well with us, because we can't stand up and preach unless we're going to say, it's got to go well with us. It's wrong with them, but it's going to go well with us. And so churches say, look at our heritage, look at our buildings, look at our status. Like here in the temple, it was, look at the temple, look at the temple. But here's what was wrong with that thinking. The Israelites had adopted the thinking of the people around them, the Canaanites and their pagan religion. 
Why? Because in Canaanite religion, the local God had a house. And so according to the Israelites, their God had a house. It was the temple. And their temple was bigger and better than the Canaanite ones. And their temple had just been refurbished. And so they thought, we're secure. It wasn't that it was wrong to have the temple. God himself had given instructions on how it was to be built. It was wrong to rely on it. An immediate practical application, I think, for us is this. We have this beautiful building. Never, ever rely on the building. Our our faith is in the Lord. The building is really nothing. Would I be devastated if this building burned down? Absolutely. Though there's about four million insurance on it, so, but no, I would, I would. I love this building, and I'd be horrified uh, if it burned down. I really would. But what's more devastating is if the building is glorious and the building is beautiful and the building is working and there is no presence of God. We don't need a building if that's going to be the case. We don't need a building at all. They were trusting in the wrong things, deceptive words. And again, I just, it's a simple challenge to me and it's a simple challenge to you. What do you trust in? You're not a Christian perhaps? What do you trust in? What, what is truth? Part two of this sermon goes from verse five to verse 11. Let me just read that. The words are, are up there. This is God speaking. If you really change your ways, remember um, Jeremiah is standing and shouting at the people who are streaming past, going into sacrifice. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord." See, what was happening here is, again, what happened so much in the church, that their actions contradicted the God they were supposed to be worshiping. Professor John L. Mackay of the Free Church College, in writing about this, says, the temple guaranteed them nothing if they were living lives of rebellion. Rather than the temple facilitating access to the Lord and fellowship with Him, when its function was misunderstood and it was misused, it became a barrier to true knowledge of God. Now, you see, that's really important. People say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how we worship God and all the other things that are involved, and at least people are worshiping, and it's better than being an atheist. It's better than not going to church. Actually, it's not. Religion acts as a barrier to God. And sometimes the closer that religion is to the truth, the more of a barrier it is, because people hear the words... They hear people saying, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus rose from the dead, and repent and turn to Jesus. But what they hear and what they see are two different things. And so what they hear is negated because of what they see. What had they not done? Justice, looking after the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Why these three groups mentioned specifically? 
because these three groups in Israel did not have a national spokesperson. John Calvin, in talking about this passage, argues that government is supposed to protect and look after the weak. And I actually think that's a legitimate application. But what does government do today? It says we look after the weak, but government will very often say we've got to look after the millionaires and the bankers because otherwise the economy will collapse and then who will do something? And there's kind of been a strange inversion. So the church has to speak up for them. James 1.27, religion, and this is the only time that the word religion is used in the Bible, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Because our Christianity is to be something that directly impacts the whole of our culture Because who is going to speak up for those who have no one to speak up for them? Surely, it has to be those who would follow God and share His concerns. They are not to shed innocent blood. A violent society with state violence as well. They were not to follow other gods. I I do think we are in a violent society. And I do think that despite our so-called liberal society the values of what our prime minister calls liberalism, which you will find as we go on over these next few years, will be more and more intolerant if you do not accept what the state tells you to believe. Because if you read his speech yesterday, that was very, very close to what was being said. We have, of course, you have no God, you have no Bible, so what do you have? What's right and wrong? What's British? It's what the government tells you is. It's what the, the media tells you is. But what if you disagree? Well, it's a violent society. It was a pluralistic society. And again, a lot of people will struggle with this. They think we should be a religiously pluralistic society. Well, if you mean by that, we shouldn't seek to impose one religion by force. Amen. But if you mean by that, that all religions are the same and they let just people pick and choose whichever they want. No, no, not amen. There's a bit of a fuss this week about a counselor who was in a meeting in England, I think Portsmouth, and um, someone stood up to say a prayer to Allah, and he got up and walked out, and he's been vilified. I, I actually admire him. I think he was absolutely spot on. Worse than unbelief is idolatry. God's people, God's people in God's temple what were they doing? Well, as, as we go through this passage, you'll see that there's even more, but they were burning incense to Baal. They'd ignored the word of God. Will you steal and murder? Commit adultery and perjury. What's that? That's the Ten Commandments. Half of the Ten Commandments are mentioned in this passage. The basis of right actions are the commandments of God. See, religious and social sins are brought together. We, we, we turn away from the living God. We will end up committing the kind of sins that we say we abhor. And notice, look what God says. He spoke again and again. In verse uh, 11, just at the end there, it says, I have been watching, declares the Lord. I have been watching. See, literally, that means I got to warn you. Some people say, well, I don't believe in God, and God would have to speak to me, and I, 
And God says, actually, I got up early to warn you. I am speaking to you, and I continue to speak to you, but you are not listening. They had a false security then in the temple, in their religious rituals. They thought that having the temple guaranteed God's protection and presence. They thought they could do as they pleased and come before God. But God says, you're like thieves. A den of, has my church become a den of robbers? Now again, that you, you have to understand the context. How thieves worked in that culture. Thieves didn't go murder people. They would come out, they would rob you, and then they would retreat into their cave where no one would go near. And what God is saying is, you have made my temple in the heart of my city amongst my people as though it were a cave of robbers, that the robbers come out, they rob people, except you've done it in the very heart of the temple. And that helps you understand what Jesus did. If you know, you know your Bibles, when Jesus came in to the temple and he cast out, and he quoted this verse, you have made it a den of robbers. And that's the abysmal thing with so much of the church today that where it should be a place of light and of love and of holiness and of the presence of Jesus Christ and the glory of the Holy Spirit, a place where people come in and say, truly God is amongst you, it has become a den of robbers. It has become a place where in the name of God, the commandments of God are rejected. And so he carries on. Third part of his sermon, verse 12 to 15. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declared the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. Shiloh was a very sacred place to the Jews. It was where the ark had rested. It was a holy place. Yet Jeremiah says, you're trusting in the temple. What happened to Shiloh? He's saying, look at history. You go to Shiloh now, it's gone. And the lesson for God's people then, as the lesson for, his, for us now is this. Nothing is sacrosanct. Not a place, not a memory, not a tradition, not an ancestor, not an upbringing. We are all called to living faithfulness now. All oh, my parents were godly people. Thank the Lord for that. But your parents being godly people don't save you. Oh, Scotland was a nation blessed by the Lord. Thank the Lord for that, that it's true. But it doesn't save us now. Oh, in this building, McShane was here, and it was just, there was revival, and wasn't it wonderful? And tourists come in and visit, and Christians get all bleary-eyed about what it was like then. Yes, but it doesn't save us now. Nothing is sacrosanct. There is no guarantee that this building won't become a pub. Nothing is sacrosanct in that way. What God is doing through Jeremiah to the people of Israel and to us is appealing to our consciences. He's saying the door of mercy is still open. He's not standing and yelling and condemning people. He's saying, turn. He appeals to our reason, how stupid it is to neglect God's commands. How stupid it is to try and try, tie God's hands to our religion. Lord, I prayed for an hour. Lord, I did my rosary. Lord, I sang this psalm. Lord, I've been to church. Therefore, you must do this. And God says, you just don't get it. You really just do not get it. God appeals to history. Look what happens when you go your own way, when you say, I did it my way. 
And then verses 16 to 20. This is after, if you like, after the sermon. It's not normally considered to be part of the sermon. This is what Jeremiah is told by God. So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do, not see what they are, do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Jeremiah is told, don't pray for them. It's a shocking thing to hear, not least because Jeremiah was a prophet, and like in Moses in Exodus 32, the prophet is supposed to intercede and to pray for the people. Now, later on, you will find Jeremiah praying for people. Was he disobeying God? No, because what he's being told here is, don't pray for them about this. Don't ask for my blessing to be upon them when they are so flagrant in their rejection of me, when they are so overwhelmingly hypocritical. What had they done that was so wrong? Just describes it there, that they'd offered bread and drink offerings for the goddess Astarte. It was a preparation that involved the whole family. Interesting that he doesn't criticize the state religion, which had been reformed by King Josiah. He criticizes the religion of the home. They baked cakes, and they were sweetened cakes used in the cult of the mother goddess Ishtar. And the whole family were involved. Now they were provoking God, but look at those words again that are, the, for me, stunning words. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Here's the deal. When you turn away from God, when you ignore God, when you go all religious but leave Jesus out of the equation, when you reject everything and leave Jesus out of the equation, it is not that you are provoking God, though that is happening. It is that you are harming yourself. It is a form of self-abuse. When you refuse to listen to God, when you refuse to hear what Jesus has to say, when you refuse to, to follow what Jesus has done, you are primarily harming yourself. Cyprian, talking about prayer, says, God is the hearer, not of the voice, but of the heart. And here's our problem. We do not need minor religious surgery. It's not enough just to pray for a blessing. It's real heart surgery that is needed. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. It really needs to go. It's, it's so radical, so deep. And if you don't go that deep, what you are doing is you are mucking around and you are self-abusing. Then, verses 20 to 26, you then go backwards this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, said. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. 
Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. It's a throwaway worship, going backwards, not forwards. There's a sarcasm here. The meat burnt offerings in the temple were the highest that could be offered. But God says, as in Hosea 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God is saying to them, actually, go ahead, eat your meat. It's like you come to church and you've got this big feast afterwards. Just go ahead, eat the meat. It's all a sham. Because in verse 24, he says, you're walking away from me. You're not walking towards me. I have to admit to a slight inclination to watch Britain's Got Talent, especially on YouTube. And uh, there's a guy in one of them called Tobias Mead. And it was one of those dance acts that were, was just pure genius where he came on. He did the kind of all the jerky stuff, you know, and, um, you know, as I saw some of you last night doing Just Dance too, you could did that very well too. But he did all the kind of jerky stuff and then he had his hood up and he turned round and on the back of his head was a mask. And it was really, really weird because he was facing away from the audience and yet it looked as though he was dancing in such a way that it looked as though he was, his back was facing forward, if you see what I mean. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, you are facing away from me, but you have a mask on which makes it look as though you're facing towards me, but it's fake. He says you are stiff-necked. What does that mean? In that culture, it's an agricultural image. It's a stubborn animal refusing the yoke, the yoke that comes on and, and to, for the animal to stop, it would stiffen up. I used to uh, work for a short while in a dairy herd, and some cows... And by the way, the cows were really vicious, far more vicious than the bulls, though of course you never tried to milk a bull, but um, that would have been an interesting experience and certainly vicious. But some cows kicked a lot, and there's one cow that's burned into my memory as number 211. I still see the yellow ear tag of number 211, and I dreaded it if it was my turn to be involved in milking her because she kicked like mad, and you used to put a clamp on her to stop her kicking. But she was real smart, and she knew when the clamp was coming, and she stiffened up, and it was really hard because you put the clamp on her, and because she stiffened up, as soon as she loosened, the clamp fell off. And, that's, and then she kicked you, and kicked the glass, and kicked everything else. She was just, oh. Anyway, that's my um, cathartic experience for the day. That's what's being described here. You are stiff-necked people. You refuse to listen. You, you steal yourself so that you don't get it. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But by refusing his yoke, we carry our own and our burden is far heavier. Verses 27 to 34, God continues. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. It's tough being a preacher if you're called Jeremiah. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished, it has vanished from their lips. I think that's a motto, by the way, for our country. Truth has perished, it's vanished from their lips. Who cares about truth? Cut off your hair and throw it away. 
take up a lament on the barren heights, for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. Jeremiah is told to mourn, to cut his hair like the Nazarites. He's, he's got to give a lament. The Nazarites had long hair. If they cut their hair, it was the end of them as priests, as consecrated to God. And Jeremiah is told, you weep because the people will not listen to God. Why should we shed tears? Because people in Scotland today do not listen to the Word of God. Because Christians don't shed tears. What we do is we've bought into the pluralistic culture which says, well, here we are in St. Peter's, we've got our faith, and here we are in Central, we've got our faith, and then this, this group got their faith, and that group got their faith, and people, let everyone do their own thing. And God says, you should be weeping. This is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Why should that be so upsetting? Does it really matter that God's word is not obeyed in Scotland today? Yes, because without vision, the people perish, and without truth, we are doomed to lies and to the father of lies. There were idols in the temple of the Lord. We read on verse 30, the people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They've built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Himon to be burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnon, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. See, this is why we should be upset. Because when people do not worship and love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, then their religion becomes one of outward form, and even that outward form becomes corrupted. They worship other gods, and then if God gives us what we want... It reaches levels of depravity that you could never mention, never imagine. Mention is made here of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. Topheth means the place of fire. It's just outside Jerusalem. There was a temple set up there, just like the temple in Jerusalem, but much smaller scale. Like the temple in Jerusalem, it had seven courts. If you wanted to enter to worship, the first door you went through, you gave an offering of flour. The second door you went through, you gave an offering of a turtle dove. The third door you went through, you gave an offering of a lamb. The fourth door you went through, you gave an offering of a ram. The fifth door you went through, you gave an offering of a calf. The sixth door, you gave an ox. And the seventh, when you got to the idol who had a face like a calf and outstretched arms like that, you put your firstborn son in there and the priest killed your son as the drums were beating so that the cries of the child could not be heard outside. And that's what God's people were doing. They were going into the temple in Jerusalem and bowing down and saying they were worshiping God, and then they were doing this. Oh, but that doesn't happen today. No, not in such a dramatic and barbaric way. But parents were trying to buy their own security and safety at their children's expense. And does that not really happen today? Take the issue of abortion, meant to be on grounds of health, vast majority on grounds of health. But leaving aside, and we'll leave aside just now the ones that really are on grounds of, of real health and danger, 
the vast majority of abortions, something like 97%, occur because of inconvenience, really. What are we doing? We're sacrificing our children to our convenience. And maybe not just in, in, in that most obvious of examples, but in other ways as well. And God says, I did not command this, nor did it enter my mind. So many things are done in the name of religion and done in the name of God and done in the name of mercy and done in the name of love and done in the name of tolerance, but they are nothing to do with God. They are to do with human selfishness and human-made traditions and human forms. And there's a disaster. No more weddings. No more children. Desolation. Barrenness. Wasteland. Their sanctuary becomes their cemetery. Book by David Wells, if you can get it, read it, called God in the Wasteland. That's what we're facing. And then I finish just by, we have to go into chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. At that time declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and the prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of heaven, which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshipped. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like refuse lying on the ground, Wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord. God's people had engaged in astral worship. They worshiped the stars. And as a result, there is despair. Death without burial was a particular curse in the ancient world. There was dishonor in death and despair in life. And it's a picture that Jesus uses, Matthew 7, 21, I quote there, and elsewhere, of something that is so offensive, that nice people don't like it, where Jesus talks about hell, and he says there is a wasteland that is far worse than the destroyed temple. There is a place where we are truly alienated and truly cast out into the outer darkness. That is hell. Now, I don't have time, and I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but in this life, if you choose to be without God, if you choose to be a hypocrite, if you choose to play at religion, if you choose to play games with God, then you ultimately get what you choose, which is when you die, you've said, I don't want God, so you go to be without God, and that is hell. This is the quote that I read, I put on Facebook this morning that was so offensive. Cyprian, written 1,700 years ago in an address to Demetrianus. The pain of punishment will then be without the fruit of penitence. Weeping will be useless and prayer ineffectual. Too late, they will believe in eternal punishment who would not believe in eternal life. There is no question and no doubt that one day you will believe. But you do not want to believe too late. I think that's where we are at in our culture. I think that's where we are at ourselves. I think we need to take this desperately, desperately seriously. The song by The Who. Uh, I just, I love the song. I love listening to it. I love watching it being played. I think they're genius with this song. Out here in the fields, I fought for my meals. I get my back into my living. I don't need to fight to prove I'm right. I don't need to be forgiven. Don't cry. Don't raise your eye. It's only teenage wasteland. It is the very antithesis of what's being said here. Jeremiah is being told is, it's not just teenage wasteland. He's saying, it is wasted. He's saying, when you see the sadness in people's eyes as you walk the streets in Dundee, when you see the falseness in people's laughter, then cry. 
Don't pretend it's all okay. Don't pretend on the end it'll all work out all right. Break your heart and cry for these people. Because it is a wasted culture, a wasted life. God's temple today is different. God's temple is his people. Sorry, Louise, can you move on to the last one, please? In 1 Peter 2, we read this, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It's that, this is a hard, hard, hard thing. It's hard because it's true. If it's not true, it is just horrendously bad. But if it is true, it is horrendously stupid to ignore it. And everything that that I see and everything that I know from the Scriptures and everything I see in this world says, this is true. This is true. We live in this wasteland. Truth has perished. We're refusing to listen to God. And God doesn't sit back and say, okay, I'm just going to let them go to hell. And God doesn't sit back and say, I take great delight in letting them go to hell. God comes to save us from that. And he sends Jeremiah to stand at the gate of the temple and proclaim his word. And he teaches repentance and he teaches forgiveness and he teaches faith in God. And later on, Jeremiah will teach, as God tells him to, of a new covenant and of a clean heart and of how that comes through Jesus Christ, and of a real temple, which is not a temple made of stone, but a living temple made of God's people, people who are born again by God's Holy Spirit, who are bound together in the love of Jesus Christ, who understand, who know what offering spiritual sacrifices really is. You want truth, really? You want to live in reality? You want to really live? Then come to Jesus and live for Jesus. Though you die, yet you shall live. I thought about saying this and decided I wasn't going to, but I have to say it. I've asked you to pray for Animal's brother, and I thank you so much for praying for him. And our prayers have been answered. He's not been healed of cancer. But when we went to visit him, he was absolutely a changed man. Absolutely. And it's a strange thing, isn't it? You go visit somebody who's dying and you come away rejoicing. How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. Though you die, yet you shall live. Because the alternative to be healed of cancer and yet eventually to die and not to have life in Christ is to say, though you live, yet you shall die. Though you live, yet you shall die. But though you die, yet you shall live. No more hypocrisy. No more sham religion. No more wasted time. No more wasted lives. Get real. Get Christ. Come and live.